Welcome to On the Cusp podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from many of the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, as we record this, crews have just managed to unmoor the container ship Ever Given, which had been stuck in the Suez Canal for nearly a week. Now, the Ever Given's misfortune was an extremely timely reminder to us land dwellers that we're highly dependent on global shipping. And I don't need to remind you that 80% of the world's trade travels by sea and that ships like the Ever Given carry 20,000 containers full of goods that we need every single day. Now, unfortunately, shipping is out of sight, out of mind. We consumers forget that global shipping is an extremely complex set of steps that have to work seamlessly or otherwise our goods get delayed and we get annoyed or worse, daily life grinds to a halt. And because we suffer from sea blindness, we don't realize that lots of other misfortunes hit global shipping as well. Explosions, suspected missile attacks, GPS spoofing. Four years ago, Maersk, which is the world's largest container shipping company, was brought down by a Russian cyber attack that was originally directed against Ukraine. Now, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber Policy in the Trump administration, Ed Wilson was responsible for trying to rein in aggression in cyberspace, or at least the part that is directed against the US and its allies. That meant, for example, implementing US government's defend forward and persistent engagement strategies. Now, Ed is a former US Air Force officer who left the Air Force with the rank of Major General. And among his many assignments, I won't list them all here, but a few highlights. He served as commander of space development and test wing at Kirtland Air Force Base, commander of the 45th Space Wing at Patrick Air Force Base, deputy commander of Air Force's Cyber at Fort George in Maryland, director of space operations at the Air Force headquarters in Washington, and commander of the 24th Air Force and Commander of Air Force Cyber at the Joint Base in San Antonio, Texas. And then, of course, after leaving the Air Force, he became Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber. Ed Barry, welcome to On the Cusp. Elizabeth, great to see you and great to be talking to you and the team. Thank you for having me aboard. It's always a pleasure. And I think we're all fans of Defend Forward and Persistent Engagement. To summarize, in easy terms, I think one could call one of them the horse's head in the bed approach, where U.S. cyber operators signal to would-be cyber perpetrators that they've been identified and will suffer consequences if they proceed. The other one, I think one can summarize as a street cop walking the beat, making occasional arrests, but generally deterring ill deeds just by being present. Now, as much as we love these strategies, I wonder, though, whether the challenge is that the signal punishment isn't strong enough. Cold war deterrence involves signaling overwhelming force. And what is the overwhelming force in cyberspace that we can signal, or do we not need overwhelming force? I think when we compare and contrast deterrence in the nuclear era, I think we have to be careful because we're talking about something that's strategic in nature. We're trying to prevent a strategic action between two superpowers. And so overwhelming force, it's something that's going to have catastrophic effects, not just for the things involved, but Worldwide, And so I think mutual assured destruction would be the ultimate form of strategic dominance, if you will, to be able to benefit this very specific action. Think about deterrence or strategic deterrence in cyber. We need to be a bit more careful. There's a lot more actors. The subjectivity that we're talking about all strategic in nature in terms of catastrophic consequences for armed conflict at whatever strategic level is 
And so I think we have to be careful in our language and then careful about assuming that we will achieve deterrence, you know, is very finite. There's a spectrum of activity in some campaigns to intellectual property theft. We're seeing this each year with the ransomware attacks that are, you know, typically through organized crime elements. So the diversity of what we're seeing in terms of actions that we're talking about potentially deterring, that gets to be a bit more challenging. Sure, we'll have some more discussion here about that. But I think as we look at it, what are we trying to deter and who are we trying to deter? Because deterrence really is trying to affect the decision calculus of others, of individuals. And that's why I think we need to be stay grounded, if you will. That's right. And in cyber in particular, what makes it so different from traditional deterrence is that you're trying to deter individuals. I think in, in no other point in history has a nation state government tried to deter individuals from attacking the country. Yes, obviously, we, we try to de- deter individuals within the country from, from committing crimes, but that's different. But in national security, I'm not aware of, of any other situation where deterrence messaging has been targeted at individuals. So how to best do that? Obviously, persistent engagement and defending forward are two ways of doing it. What is your conclusion so far from in terms of how successful it has been and to which extent you've managed to reach the individuals you want to reach with your signaling? To date, I think we've been moderately successful. And I think the elements that when you look at Defend Ford, it's in a bigger context of strategic deterrence. And so I think the elements that apply in the Cyber Solarium Commission was very articulate in terms of laying these out. But first, we want to try to deter by denial. And so denying whatever set of benefits. And so it's typically thought of in terms of the defensive posture that an organization, a nation, a you know, military or a company would be putting in place. And so that's to be able to stop the impacts of some type of attack or espionage or disinformation campaign. And so each of those looks different in terms of the type of activity that's being directed at you. The other would be imposition of some form of cost, increasing the cost on the decision maker. And typically, when we think in the national security community, we're trying to affect the decision calculus of a leader, a national leader that's going to be authorizing certain types of attack. And so by increasing the cost, that decision calculus now becomes much more, much different. And so when we talk about more of a strategic activity or event that we're trying to deter in cyberspace, I think we've been successful. I, we haven't seen any attacks on the US or our close allies in the form of, say, like the energy grid going down in a region, those types of attacks, which I would describe as a strategic, you know, almost catastrophic attack on the nation. And it's not because of everything we've done in just the cyber arena, it's because we've used all diplomatic tools, information tools, you know, our military is at the ready if something that was to happen, there would be a response to something like that. So it's not just a cyber on cyber. But I think the other kind of key tool deterring really through entanglement, you know, alliances, norms of behavior, those types of things. And we see that advanced by all of the really the Western governments, US, UK, others, very aggressively and articulately. I think those are key elements because that really sets the foundation that you operate in collective defense constructs that operate not just with military, but across, you know, economically, et cetera. I think those are key tools when we look at like theft of intellectual property at scale, those types of activities. I think there's a lot of benefit that we can achieve there. And then again, as you pointed out, we need to be able to message that strategic communication. And a lot of times we hear, well, you know, demonstrate the capability and then talk about it. I think in this case, we have such a large spectrum of activity going on. I think the messaging can get a bit, the wires can get crossed a bit. And I think 
you know, our focus has been to deter strategic attacks on the nation. And I think we've been fairly successful there. And if we move down the ladder of spectrum, I think we have not been as successful in some of the other types of cyber events, I'll call them not even attacks. The other thing is when an attack happens, it means deterrence has failed. And so in deterrence, you constantly have to signal before something happens. You can't even know whether the other side is planning to do it. Although I think in cyber, it's fairly clear the other side is planning to do something. So you signal that it's it's not going to be worth your while. But I think what, what's so interesting in a gray zone aggression is that you can signal that the response will be something that is not in the same area. So you, you mentioned IP theft. Obviously, we wouldn't respond to, we wouldn't signal to another country that if you steal our IP, we will steal yours because that's not what liberal democracy does. Well, what sort of opportunities or, or chances do you see in asymmetric deterrence, as it were, that we can signal that, that we'll respond and you won't like it, but it's not going to be eye for an eye because we, we have certain standards we adhere to? I think you've seen some messaging and, you know, I've been out of government for well over a year now. So, but I think in the case that you put on the table is with the theft of intellectual property. When you look at the way that nations are handling that, it's not that we're going to go steal your IP, your, your intellectual property. However, we're using other diplomatic has been alive and well. We're seeing very unified, up, especially from Western democracies. In addition, we're seeing economic sanctions being used. And so I think that is beginning to have some impact on decision calculus of actors that are out really running large intellectual property. I think disinformation has been a bit more of a challenge. We've definitely been messaging. We definitely have stepped in with other activity, diplomatic and otherwise, to include potentially, as I read the papers, you know, cyber activity as well in terms of being able to message. So I think those are all viable options. Are they effective? I think it may be temporal in nature. Sometimes in the US, we are given a task that in a temporal fashion, say an election, for instance, you know, is, a, is a, maybe the prime example where we're in a run up to an election, an election's going to occur. And then there's, you know, kind of the follow through on the election is to make sure that the election happens in a you know, secure manner to the best of our ability and that there's confidence in the election. And that's where a lot of forces can come to play within the cyber domain that from a disinformation primarily. And we're seeing that used quite a bit. That can be a challenge. So you may be successful in the temporal activity of an election, but have you deterred the action in the long term? That can be a challenge. And so you may achieve your near-term objectives, which is a safe and secure and confident election. You know, the public is confident in the election, but that may not deter the overall actions of an adversary. That's a good point. And so just because an election has, has come and gone without major interference, it doesn't mean that we can breathe easily because it may just have been deferred. That's right. An adversary will learn and will come back. <laughs> you know, if, if, if that is a high priority, unless the history is, is proven over and over again that an enemy will be knocking back on the door and they will change the behavior potentially. And so there is a, you know, as we deter actions, there's obviously a dynamic that's always involved. And I think a lot of times, we see in the gray zone in particular, we see horizontal escalation, if you will. We see activity in a like manner. The techniques might change, but there's these thresholds that most of the actors that we're dealing with in the form of Russia and China, et cetera, they don't want to hit those thresholds. And it's in the eye of the beholder, but they're very careful not to trip very aggressive responses from the US, UK, others as they go about their deeds. And so 
there's a mind in the decision space of an adversary that they don't want to escalate in a vertical sense, but at times they're they're not as reluctant to escalate horizontally with more like activity. That's in some of the key takeaways in the war gaming and yeah. exercises we've done. We see that dynamic over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And they are very innovative. I must say, in a sense, credit to our adversaries for, for thinking so creatively about what they can do with the tools they have at their disposal. And they are using those tools very well, too well, obviously, from a Western perspective. But they are, as you say, very good at experimenting or expanding horizontally. You raised the issue of timing and, and, and a timing issue that, that seems to be vital and that nobody seems to have figured out is how to quickly respond to aggression, especially in, in cyberspace. Obviously, there's the question of attribution. And it takes some time and it may never happen. And in the meantime, the, the targeted country, obviously, the targeted country or countries should have been able to deter the, the aggression in the first place. But let's, let's assume they haven't. And, and that often happens then they have to respond and, and attribution takes some time. And then you have to consult with allies about how to respond. And then time slips away and, and whatever response is agreed on is, comes quite late and seems then disconnected from the act that it's a response to. Do you have an answer to this dilemma? Should we have some sort of protocol that governments could go through very expeditiously and would have been agreed on, on beforehand? I wish it was simpler and I wish we had, you know, the almost instantaneous attribution at times, and we're able to build coalitions very quickly, like we would in the kinetic world or you know in the physical world. Attribution tends to be much easier, especially from a national security perspective, when you know somebody crosses a border or there's a military force that's been brought to bear, et cetera. But that just isn't the case, obviously, in cyberspace, and so that is a challenge. I think we've all gotten better at attribution, and I think part of that has been the rise of the commercial sector in this space, the commercial cybersecurity enterprise. Not just There's not just a handful of very elite or exquisite capabilities that are held by the national security communities in various nations, but there's a, a lot of partnership now that goes on. And there's an ecosystem that is able to attribute in a much more rapid manner. I don't think it will ever be as quick as we want it to be. It's kind of like intelligence. We always want it to be very rapid. And mm -hmm. at times it does take, you know, to be able to have high confidence or moderate levels of confidence and intelligence going to drive a decision, right? That's always a challenge for anybody in a decision chair in, in a government. But I think we are getting better. I think that's where your messaging and your strategic communications, it may not be premeditated in terms of messaging, but if we are going to carry out a set of actions that we have to be very clear, especially with particular actors, in terms of messaging that this is in response, even though it's been delayed, this is in response. Yeah. And we come at it from a response options with very high confidence in that that was the action that took place. And so while time does erode some of the effectiveness of that response, I don't think that should prevent the response. And over months and years, it may not operate in today's media cycle, if you will, but you're clearly sending a strategic deterrence message when you respond. And it prepositions you for the next activity, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And, and unusually, the recipient of that communication isn't the average Twitter consumer, but it's a very specific recipient. And if, if they receive it, that's mission accomplished. I just want to bring up one quick thing, and that is, we talk a lot about, oh, we need cyber warriors, cyber warriors, cyber warriors, and that's fantastic. Governments put money to that end, or designate money for that. Do we have enough young people who want to become cyber warriors? So 
unless something's changed in the last you know 18 months since I left government, everything that I see and everything I saw inside the Department of Defense within the U.S. shows that we don't have any trouble recruiting the right kind of talent. That has never been an issue for the last 10, 15 years, based on my experience, both in command and up at the headquarters at the Pentagon. And so there's a long line of people that want to serve inside the military, and they're drawn to the skills and the uniqueness of being a cyber warrior. I'll just use that term. And so that line is very deep in terms of recruits, potential recruits, and it's a competitive selection process in each of the services, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, et cetera. The challenge has always been, can we retain the talent long term? Yeah. You know, that's always the flip side. So the recruiting part and bringing qualified individuals in and getting them up speed goes well. The retention part can be the challenge. Fortunately, when you're in the military or national security community, the mission is so unique, people are drawn to it. And that is kind of a recruiting tool in itself. And it's a retention tool itself. They understand that if they go downtown, people may pay them more, but they can't do the types of missions in a legal manner that they're doing for the government. And so that's always a a retention. And fortunately, we don't have to keep everyone. And I think most nations would concur in terms of leadership that when we have people leave government, whether that's the military or the intelligence side or whatever, that when they go out into society, whether that's the cybersecurity community or work at businesses, you know, in a global fashion, I think that is a healthy thing. And so like in a lot of different skills, I'll speak for the military in the United States is we're a provider of talent into the commercial sector. Yeah. And we're not the only one, but we bring not just skills, but we bring people that know how to work in a team that are very disciplined. They have an ethical you know, compass to them, very hardworking, and they happen to have a very unique set of skills at times. And so with experience, not just book smart, but experience. And yeah. so I think that dynamic where People are coming and going out of the different organizations, whether that's the military or other organizations. That's a healthy thing. Now we have to retain enough of the right types of talent. And we spend a lot of time doing that. It seems to have worked well so far. So on that positive note, Ed Wilson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Elizabeth. Many thanks to all of you for listening. As always, if you're not already a subscriber, please feel free to subscribe and comment as well. We are available on Apple and Spotify. And as always, you can also tweet at me. I'm Elizabeth Braun. And as ever, many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Andrea Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.